Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. The University of Minnesota is offering a May term course that explores pandemics in a historical context with an emphasis on how science intersects with public policy as nations deal with a major health crisis. The class will also examine COVID-19 and the forces that are shaping governmental and public responses to the pandemic. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, a conversation with Macy Flood, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Minnesota who is teaching the course. Macy, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. That's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You are teaching a May term course titled History Making, Epidemics, Politics, and Coronavirus. Give us an overview of what that course will cover. So the course is a one-credit course that's three weeks long, so it's trying to cover quite a lot in quite a short period of time. Um, It's intended to help students put the coronavirus pandemic into historical context, drawing on the expertise of experts in a history of science and medicine, really, as well as experts in um, emergency preparedness, bioethics, and Chinese public health and medical history, really. So it's bringing together a lot of different expertise and knowledge to help students understand changes in public policy and public response to epidemic events in Chinese and American history in about the last hundred years. Scientists and doctors are scrambling to understand COVID-19, and much about the virus remains a mystery. What are the challenges in teaching a class where new information comes out each day? How will the class keep up with all of the changes that are taking place with regard to the pandemic? Well, that's a great question. I think it's probably impossible for it to do that, honestly. Um, And I have, you know, there's no way of knowing what the landscape of the pandemic or of our discourse about it is really going to be in two weeks, let alone by the end of the class. Honestly, um, my biggest challenge has been paring down my syllabus and not adding new material that's coming out from the people doing research in the present. But while a lot of scientific and medical knowledge has been evolving over time, many of the dominant themes that we're discussing in the class Things like xenophobia and questions about public and private rights have been at play since the beginning of the epidemic. And frankly, our themes that crop up in other epidemics as well. Um, So how those are playing out is going to be changing as um, students interact with the course material. Those frameworks themselves are what students are getting in the class and are going to be able to have in order to understand the present context that they're in. Speaking of xenophobia, President Trump at one point called COVID-19 the Chinese virus, and then he referred to it as the China virus. Is xenophobia something we've seen crop up in other pandemics that have happened uh, throughout history? Absolutely. It's a pretty common theme, um, especially in epidemics of illnesses that have, um, you know, unclear etiologies and no specific drugs to treat them. So when the public health measures at play are measures like quarantine and isolation, then figuring out how to implement quarantines, who to let in and who to let out of them, how to restrict travel or not restrict travel really ends up bringing to light tensions within different communities. So um, you see that across epidemics in the United States from, uh, to some extent, the 1918 to 1920, you know, Spanish flu epidemic, polio epidemics, um, SARS epidemic, all epidemics in U.S. history. The class looks at past epidemics like the 1918 flu and the 2003 SARS outbreaks. Why are these epidemics significant in history? Well, that's a very large question to answer, but I can give you a couple of small things to say. The 1918 
epidemic killed an inordinate number of people. It affected an incredible number of people, um, affecting a third of the world's population at the time, 500 million people, killing at least 50 million, um, including 675 million Americans. So the scale of people affected was just tremendous. And it was unique in many different ways. It had three recurrent waves, which is pretty unusual for influenzas. Some historians have called it the most significant event of the early 20th century, both for the scale of the epidemic itself, um, its impact on the war and on public health responses that were enacted in response to it, and also kind of its continued purchase in the historical imagination and really as a historical data point. Many experts from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, draw upon data from the 1918 flu to make predictive models for the present. So it was significant at the time and it continues to be a significant data point for the present. Um, SARS epidemic, um, as you said, it started in China in November 2002, was really a current event in 2003, and it was um, in some ways much less of an event. It was brought under control relatively quickly. It affected about 8,000 people, killed between seven and 800 people. Like our contemporary epidemic, it was also caused by a coronavirus that was highly contagious and unlike ours was quite a bit more lethal. The important story about SARS I think is the story of global health and of the global campaign to contain the disease, um, which was really inflected by the um, growing power of the World Health Organization coming to the fore as an organizer and clearinghouse for governmental and non-governmental organizations. And the impact of SARS in that regard and the World Health Organization's power over public health in a global context is something that definitely persists into the present. Our guest is Macy Flood, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Minnesota who is teaching a May-term course titled History Making, Epidemics, Politics, and Coronavirus. In the midst of this crisis, it's difficult to imagine what the future will look like and whether American society can return to normal or if our economy and necessary responses to the pandemic will significantly change our day-to-day lives. Looking at the 1918 flu, was there ever a return to normal? And if so, how long did the recovery take? Or, in other words, were there drastic changes in political upheavals that happened as a result of the pandemic? Well, that's a difficult question to answer, and a lot of it's out of my league. What I can say is that um, it's pretty significant that the 1918 flu pandemic took place during the waning years of the world of World War One, And so it's pretty difficult to disentangle kind of the social consequences of the pandemic from the, you know, armistice of the war, the war, and then the armistice from the war. A couple of things I can say are one, there won't be a return to normal. I would say that historians looking at medical events throughout history can say that they impact societies in one way or another. Um, and things don't return to exactly the way that they will be before. Um, I think that it's safe to say there are major social and political changes. I don't know that I would use the word upheaval in respect to the flu pandemic itself. But there were certainly a lot of huge changes in public policy, public health policies in multiple different countries. And I guess the other thing I want to say is that in some ways there weren't. There are many ways in which there was a return to problematic social norms. For example, despite lower rates of infection from the Spanish flu and um, African-American social groups, there were no changes to prevailing racist medical and social structures, you know, no changes to racist scientific beliefs that black people were inherently physically inferior or more susceptible to the illness or and no major public health or medical initiatives um, targeting those um, social groups. So the answer is things don't return to normal and in some ways they do, or at least to the norms that are in place. 
What are the similarities between the SARS outbreak and the coronavirus pandemic? The obvious answer is that they're both coronaviruses, that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a much greater spread in social and economic impact than SARS, obviously, um, which is due in no small part to the way that the viruses behave in bodies. They act differently. I would say that thematically, both are bringing to the fore the relative responsibilities of private citizens, governments, and intergovernmental agencies, again, like the World Health Organization, Um, again, in large part because the primary forms of preventing the spread are quarantine and isolation. So we're really seeing um, a lot of questions coming into public discourse around rights. Um, And similarly, uh, we're experiencing um, resurgence of xenophobic uh, reactions against people in the United States and in other places too, people who are from Asia or of Asian origin. Um, Those uh, incidents have been well-documented. I think Erica Lee has something in the human brief today about just the rising tide of xenophobia, anti-Asian xenophobia in the United States. Um, That's similar to the SARS epidemic as well. Let's talk about the similarities between the SARS outbreak and the coronavirus pandemic. How did SARS inform China and other hard-hit Asian countries in their handling of COVID-19? That's a great question. Experience with SARS absolutely influenced the experience of countries, including uh, like China, Singapore, and Taiwan in dealing with SARS. And for some countries, including South Korea, also the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome or MERS. This happened directly in a couple of different ways. For example, in Wuhan, clinicians learning about the new pneumonia um, that would end up you know, being identified as COVID-19 um, were already on alert because they'd had experience with SARS. Furthermore, researchers who identify the probable cause of COVID-19, the transfer from bats to humans, were able to do so because they'd already worked on the question of the transmissions of SARS, um, you know, in years prior. Both experience and then the memory of these um, epidemics also made citizens in these nations more likely to comply with drastic public health measures. And the governments of these places, they're more prepared to address them quickly. So places like Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan absolutely had the SARS epidemic in mind in their responses and were correspondingly aggressive by implementing travel restrictions um, early on against the World Health Organization's recommendations and putting into place broad restrictions on workplace and school activities, um, public health announcements, et cetera. One obvious example of this is the experience of Taiwan. Following the SARS epidemic in 2003, Taiwan, as did Hong Kong, created a central epidemic command center to coordinate and mobilize responses um, if and when such an event should happen again in the future. So during the SARS epidemic, Um, Neither Taiwan nor Hong Kong had had such a center and that had been um, arisen in the aftermath as a a need for both those places. So in the contemporary epidemic, Taiwan's president activated that command center very early. And again, as I said, they went far beyond the World Health Organization's recommendations, screening and later banning travelers from mainland China, implementing a rationing system for face masks and carrying out an aggressive system of quarantine and isolation. Um, And these methods were apparently quite successful despite how close these places were, um, like Taiwan, to mainland China, um, with what looks right now as 440 cases and six deaths. The same can be said for Singapore, as well as other East Asian countries, including South Korea. But I think it's important to recognize that other political events likely also helped countries in East Asia prepare for the COVID-19 epidemic, or pandemic, I guess, at this point, like changes in political leadership and policy. Um, So I just want to name that The SARS outbreak occurred soon after China resumed sovereignty over Hong Kong in 1997. And although they were uh, criticized for withholding information and concealing the extent of the SARS epidemic, it was a moment of, as I've said already in this interview, 
uh, increased in strategic international response through the World Health Organization. And in the years since, China's administration has increased their foreign influence as well as crystallized their central power. We saw this in the months before and into the COVID-19 epidemic with the escalation of protests in Hong Kong, which can be interpreted as a reaction of the erosion of the territory's sovereignty um, under the conditions of China's expansion of central powers. And that increasing central power possibly enabled the Chinese president to put into place much tighter disease containment measures than those we've seen in the United States. So looking at the reports now coming out of Wuhan, those also appear to have been effective and bring up a lot of questions about the relationship between, you know, again, government power, human rights, and public health. Looking at past epidemics as well as the response to the coronavirus today, how does science intersect with politics? For example, during these public health crises, does science take a lead in directing the response? Or how does culture and politics dictate how the science is interpreted? Great question. I mean, as a historian of science and medicine, I'll always err on the side of saying that science is created by people and it's subject to the politics of this context in which the science is happening and being spread and um, having interactions with other humans. So politics play a huge role in the way that scientific and medical information about diseases are generated and disseminated or not. For example, in 1918, Many governments, including the United States, um, all of which had cases of flu before Spain censored the press because they didn't want to damage morale. Um, and federal officials in the U.S. hesitated to order quarantines because flu outbreaks would threaten you know, patriotism as well as the economy. Um, so despite what one might call scientific medical information regarding the efficacy of the spread of information, um, as well as quarantines within the U.S., those measures were subject to the political influences of those who were putting them into place. So I would just stop there. I mean, one could say a lot more, but I think we should never undersell the degree to which um, science from its funding to its dissemination is imbued with politics, whether or not the information itself seems to be. Our guest is Macy Flood, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Minnesota who is teaching a May-term course titled History Making, Epidemics, Politics, and Coronavirus. Tell us about the U's History of Science, Technology, and Medicine program. Is this class you're teaching representative of what the program teaches? Great question. I would say to some degree, yeah. This class is pretty interdisciplinary, so in that respect, I guess many of our courses are more led directly by one or more historians rather than, you know, drawing upon the expertise of multiple experts in different fields. However, the um, program in the history of science, technology, and medicine, the faculty of that program are seated in the School of Medicine, the College of Science and Engineering, and the College of Biological Sciences, as well as in our program. In other words, they're all um, historians who are in some degree or another uh, housed in an interdisciplinary way. So many of the students have backgrounds in science, and many of us are interested in and attentive to present-day concerns relative to the respective fields of study that we have, and our faculty are as well. So yes, and I hope that our program continues to keep putting forward classes like this that are really just attentive to very contemporary, really current events, bringing our expertise into the fore. Is there a particular student or major that you had in mind for this class? Is this class intended more for either science or history majors or conceivably both? Can I say conceivably both? 
Uh, I mean, our department draws a lot from, you know, people who are um, pre-medical or pre-health in any sense. Um, And we certainly have a few of those enrolled, but actually thus far, the enrollments look like they're mostly coming from people with science majors. And I would love to see more humanists enroll. I hope that more do. I think it's a fantastic opportunity for people in the humanities to get a little bit more grounding in um, other disciplines way of looking at the material that they work with. Can the general public take this class? And if so, how does one register? Yes, the general public sure can. Um, I would be delighted if they did. The easiest way to register is through the College of Continuing and Professional Studies. They have guidelines on their website for how non-degree and guest students can apply. And I believe they can help you if you need some uh, guidance figuring out how to navigate their system and potentially kind of the university's registration system as a whole, which can be somewhat complicated um, if you aren't you know, used to doing it on a regular basis. The course ID is HMED, H-M-E-D, 3940. Um, and if people have any questions about how to apply or uh, more questions about the course or need some you know, guidance about how to get into it, they can, of course, feel free to contact me. With the stay-at-home order in place through May 18th, this class will have to be obviously taught online. Can you tell us about how you plan to structure the class and about some of the challenges of distance learning? Well, this is my first time structuring a course entirely online, and it's certainly been an experience and definitely benefiting from the incredible amount of expertise that's been built in the last several months by so many people at the university who've already put so much time and thought and energy into it. Um, so again, the course is online only. There may we may be offering a semester-length version in the fall, and you know how that rolls out is dependent on what the university puts into place policy-wise. This course is online only, so it will incorporate a mix of synchronous, which is like real-time online lectures and discussions through Zoom. It will also include access, like our course material, what students are required to, you know, be looking at and reading, um, includes articles in a book um, that's available for free online, as well as podcasts and films, all of which will be available through the Canvas page and some of which are, you know, easily accessible otherwise also if people want to share that information with family members or what have you. Um, the most exciting and interesting part has been incorpor- trying to incorporate like historical methodologies into the course as well. So, you know, part of the joy of learning history isn't just hearing about it, it's learning how to do it, like learning how to interact with primary sources, you know, see for oneself, like what history looked like, and then make your own arguments and inferences based on it. And I, you know, I love the material aspects of that a lot. And it was hard to let go of, you know, going to archives and looking at objects and talking about what they're made out of and how they're arranged next to one another. But through the guidance and brilliance of a couple of colleagues of mine, particularly um, Dr. Emily Beck and Lois Hendrickson. We've come up with um, some really cool exercises using online, a wealth of online archives about focusing mostly on the 1918 pandemic as well as archives that are being created now about the coronavirus in order to help students learn how to both access primary sources, interpret them, understand why archives are built the way that they are, whose voices are represented, what kind of stories can be drawn easily from them and what can't, and then have some experience in making arguments about them. So uh, that piece of it absolutely has been the most challenging and probably the most interesting part, for sure. The COVID-19 crisis has really opened up a lot of, I would say, wounds to some extent where um, we see some of the 
historical inequalities in the delivery of health care, for example, for many Americans. Uh, we've seen the rise of xenophobia again. Uh, we've also seen some political schisms over how we should handle COVID-19, uh, particularly as it relates to stay-at-home orders and the closure of businesses. Our country was divided going into the COVID-19 crisis. It's divided during the crisis. Do you see any proverbial silver lining when we get through this? Maybe the best question, the best way to phrase this is, what's the world you'd like to see emerge from COVID-19 in terms of changes to our understanding of science, our appreciation of science, and uh, perhaps how we may need to rethink our healthcare system in this country? Oh gosh, well, there's so many changes I'd like to see. I think it is remarkable that not only have the isolation, you know, these social distancing measures put into place for most people have affected many people across many social lines in a way that's quite visible because of how we are using media and the internet. Um, so my hope is that that, and I guess, again, I, I, I think that this pandemic is raising very important questions about what economies and who economies need in order to function. Um, the question about, you know, what is being raised, I think, frequently in the media right now, what, you know, how do we balance people getting sick from sickness and people getting sick from not working. That, that's, a real, that's a real question and it's one that many people are grappling with and is kind of striking, as you said, at the heart of some deep political schisms as well as like very long-standing social inequity. My hope is that we as individuals and our states and our federal government don't turn away from the discomfort there, the discomfort and kind of impossibility of resolution really of what is more important and instead begin to think quite creatively about for both i mean of course i think oh wouldn't it be great to come out of this with like really solid public health and infrastructure wouldn't it be good for us to come out of this with a health system that functions for all people and employment systems that um, are more secure and able to withstand a health event of this scale and it's quite possible that it will but humans are also quick to forget. So it is upon the media and really upon our leaders to prevent us from doing so. Macy Flood is a PhD candidate in the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine program at the University of Minnesota. She's teaching a May-term course titled History Making, Epidemics, Politics, and Coronavirus. Macy, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you so much, Jim. It was a pleasure talking with you. Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. Public health officials in Minnesota and elsewhere are urging citizens to take precautions during the COVID-19 pandemic, ranging from social distancing to wearing masks to sheltering in place. Compliance with these guidelines is waning in some parts of the country, and there's growing pressure to loosen restrictions so that more businesses and public spaces can reopen. Next week on Dialogue Minnesota... University of Minnesota Professor of Sociology and Law Joshua Page joins us to discuss the delicate balance between personal liberty and the need to restrict human activity during a public health crisis. Be sure to visit us at DialogueMinnesota.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. That's all for this week. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.